if you've got your Bibles, John 20 is where we are. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles, you've got a device, great, pull that out, uh, get in your app, or none of that, that's awesome too. We'll have it on the screen for you. Uh, and uh, we'll be talking through uh, John, the book of John, one of the Gospels, uh, chapter 20. So let's pray together and we'll get started. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your goodness. We praise you that you have conquered the grave and death and you are alive and you sit at the right hand of the Father. You interceding, praying for us even now. Pray, Jesus, that you would just move in our hearts and lives. Send the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit does, to edify, encourage, to save, to convict. I pray, God, that you would just move in power in the service. Bless the preaching of your word and, Father, be honored by it. We love you. And we are uh, full of great joy uh, because um, death has been defeated and you are alive and we praise you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, like I said, John 20 is where we are uh, today and pumped to have you here with us. And, uh, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of traditions at Easter that you might have. Uh, you might do egg hunts maybe with your kids or your families, or you might dye eggs. My family this week, we, we dyed eggs. And, uh, you know, you get Easter baskets or, or whatever. How many of you like Cadbury eggs? Anybody? How many of you like Peeps? Okay, we're going to have to revoke membership. Um, <laughs> You know, you either love peeps or you hate peeps. You know, I love to put them in the microwave and watch what happens. Uh, but, uh, you know, peeps are, you, yeah, anyway, I, I, I don't want to offend anyone. Uh, or, you know, maybe a tradition of yours would be put on your best pastel and come to the church. If that's the case, super glad you're here. You know, last year we, uh, you know, at Easter we were handing out these, uh, you know, just basically uh, these uh, pamphlets, are just a handout, just saying, hey, come back next week. We're starting a series, you know, just trying to get guests to, you know, make church a regular part of their life or whatever. And uh, we're handing it to one guy and we start to hand it to him. He goes, nope, I only come at Easter. <laughs> so if you're here, welcome. Uh, glad you're back. Good to see you. We'll see you next year. Um, for all of our other guests, uh, man, we would love for you to uh, make this just a, your home, a part of a normal, regular routine for you, that you would see church and Jesus as more than just a holiday or a tradition, but you'd see how necessary he is for life. And I think today's passage will really help communicate that because there's a lot of hope in it. Uh, there, there's a lot of hope and a lot of really opening our eyes to the truth that Jesus is life. Uh, he is where life is found. He is where both eternal life is found and abundant life is found. And, and we're going to see that in, in the message today. If you remember, uh, you know, we celebrated Good Friday, three, you know, this past Friday. And uh, what happened on that Friday was that Jesus was brutally beaten and murdered. He was flogged. He was uh, a crown of thorns put in his head. He was you know, ridiculed, he was spit upon, mocked, and ultimately crucified on a cross and died. And Jesus was taken from that cross and put into a tomb and a stone rolled over the face of the tomb to bury Jesus. Now, can you imagine in that moment what these disciples, the ones that had been following him, there were 12 that were very intimate disciples with him, but 120 total disciples. What these people, these disciples had put all their eggs in the Jesus basket, 
right? And so here they thought Jesus was going to be the one to overthrow Rome, reestablish the Israel theocracy, and, and be the king, be the one that sets things right, be the one that frees them from tyranny again. They, they put all their hopes into Jesus, and he died and was buried in a tomb. And their hopes were dashed, destroyed, full of sorrow, confusion, trying to figure out what they're going to do now. Some of the disciples are hiding. Some of them are just going back to family businesses. Their life turned upside down, but it wasn't just the disciples who were distraught. And what we're really going to zero in on today is a character of the story named Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was uh, is a very interesting story. So, so, so what had happened that Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and about four other women, if you put all the gospels together, you kind of see the timeline, but these four other women are coming to the tomb because they're bringing spices and stuff to, to further uh, prepare Jesus' body for burial. If you remember, they put Jesus' body in the tomb very quickly because they had to get him in the tomb before Passover. So Mary felt as if the burial process wasn't adequate enough. And so she was coming to bring spices to do further preparation for his burial. And she's going to arrive at the tomb. Hopefully the guards will help her roll the stone away to be able to prepare Jesus' body. Well, they get there at the tomb and to her uh, shock, the tomb, the, the stone is rolled away and the tomb is empty. And she starts like, like freaking out. Like what have they done with Jesus' body? Where have you laid the body of my Lord? She would say. So she doesn't know what to think. She's distraught. She runs back to tell the disciples, Peter and John, uh, what has happened. And Peter and John begin running uh, to check out the tomb for themselves. Uh, obviously, John is uh, in a lot better condition than Peter because he gets there way before Peter. And so typical John fashion, John shows up at the tomb and he kind of looks in and he's very calculated and he's kind of looking and trying to figure out what's happening. And then Peter huffing and puffing comes in very Peter fashion and just kind of bowls him out of the way to look in the tomb. And then it says, the scripture says that they both saw that Jesus was not there, that his body had been, is gone. And the word for saw, uh, seen or saw in that particular passage, it means two different words. For Peter, it's very straightforward. He saw that Jesus was not there. And so he leaves kind of confused, not understanding. But the word for saw for John says he understood or believed. So the first person quite possibly to believe that to, and understand that Jesus had risen from the grave is John. And so Peter and John then go and return uh, back home. And here's Mary Magdalene returning uh, back to the tomb. She's, she's still kind of distraught. She doesn't know what's happened. She's kind of confused as to what's going on. She's weeping. And, and, and we're going to see that she's, she's trying to figure out what have they done uh, with, with Jesus' body. But, the, but a beautiful piece of the story, what we're going to see when we read the text, is Jesus is going to show himself to Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is going to be the first person to see the resurrected Jesus. Now, there is great significance here, a lot of great significance. First of all, um, Mary Magdalene was a nobody from nowhere. 
Magdalene is not her last name. They call her Mary Magdalene because she was from the town of Magdala, which is on the Sea of Galilee, about 70 miles north of Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified, about 70 miles north of Jerusalem on, on, on the Sea of Galilee is Magdala, this podunk town. And, and you've heard the Bible say about Jesus, what good could come from Nazareth, right? Well, Magdala is very close to, to, to Nazareth because what the people that lived in Jerusalem were the people that couldn't cut it religiously. And so they're the religious rejects, they're the poor, they're the fishermen. And so they're all up north around the Sea of Galilee. And so Mary Magdalene comes from Magdala, which is right there at the Sea of Galilee. And so she's a nobody from nowhere. On top of that, she's a woman. This is important because in that culture, uh, women were not valued at all. Uh, Women could not uh, be a witness in court at a trial. Matter of fact, Jewish men would pray every morning and thank God that God made them a man instead of a Gentile, a woman, or a dog. So women were not valued in that culture. But here's Jesus turning the culture on its head. Jesus has always valued women. He has always elevated uh, women. He's always seen women as very uh, you know, crucial and pertinent and, and valued and loved. Like he, he, he steps in and values women. And you see that in that he showed himself first to Mary. This is a beautiful thing. And, you, you know, too, like in this, you know, if you're writing the script, if you're writing the Bible, uh, and you're like, if this isn't true, if this is all fake and not real, what are you going to do? You're going to say he showed himself to Peter or he showed himself to John or he so, showed himself to someone affluent or he showed himself to, you know, someone important. But that's not what happened. He showed himself to Mary. And here's the other crucial thing. Like there were more important women that he could have showed himself to. He could have showed himself to his mother, Mary. He could have showed himself to Mary of Bethany. I know there's a lot of Marys here, hard to keep straight. But Mary of Bethany, which is the town she was from, who anointed his feet with oil. He could have showed himself to a lot of people. And, And the reason why it's even more scandalous that he showed himself to Mary Magdalene. If you remember, Mary Magdalene had a past. Mary Magdalene... The reason Mary Magdalene loved Jesus so much is because Jesus healed her from so much. Mary Magdalene was possessed by seven demons. And I think seven being the number of perfection throughout the Bible, I think she was holistically possessed by demons. And Jesus steps in and frees her, casts the demons out of her and frees her from this oppression. So, and then it's rumored, this is, there's no biblical evidence of this, but there's, there's rumor that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. Now, again, there's no, no biblical evidence, but when you are demon possessed as she was, I'm sure you're not too concerned about your chastity. And so she, she's a woman with a past. She's a woman that's got some, some wounds and some scars and some skeletons and closets. And she, she, she's got some things in her life that she's not proud of. And this is the woman that Jesus chooses to show himself to first. I don't know how you came in here, but I do know this. Everyone that came in here has some kind of past. You, you may not be as scandalous as Mary Magdalene and have those kind of demons that you've had to be healed from but it may be just as paralyzing. You might be in here today thinking you can't find life in Christ because of your past. Or you can't have a relationship with Jesus because of what you've done and the shame and the guilt that's looming over your head. 
You, you, you may not think that you're worthy enough or valuable enough or that you're significant enough to really step into relationship with Christ because you're a nobody from nowhere. You, you're not influential and you're, you, 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 know, you, you feel like you have no value. Now, this is the beautiful thing about what Jesus has done here with Mary Magdalene is that those whom he's loved and those whom he's saved, he's placed on you great value, great worth, great significance, and great freedom. And there's no one in here that's got a past that Jesus can't rescue you from. There's no one too jacked up that Jesus can't fix up. No one. And so this is the beautiful thing about the first person to see Jesus alive from the grave is Mary Magdalene. It's a beautiful picture of the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the love that Jesus offers and the life that is to be found in Christ and Christ alone. Now, let's read our text. Starting in John, John 11, I'm going to read through the beginning of verse 15 in this section. We'll, we'll read all the way through 18 today, but um, let's start out. John chapter 20, verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. She said, uh, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? The first point I want us to get today and help you understand uh, is that Jesus heals our brokenness. Jesus brings healing to our brokenness. You know, the Greek word here used for weeping means loud, uncontrollable wailing. So she is not, not just, you know, a few tears. She is wailing, distraught, completely broken over Jesus dying but also that someone has stolen his body and done something with his body. So she's completely losing her, uh, her mind here. And then, and then in this encounter with Jesus, uh, you know, with the angels and Jesus, she's asked a couple of questions that I think have some implications for us today. The first question, the angels ask her, uh, why are you weeping? You know, one commentator I read said, see, even angels don't know why women cry. That was a commentator that said that. You know, that, I just thought that was pertinent information. Uh, <laughs> the angel says, why are you weeping? And then Jesus says to her again, why are you weeping? You know, Jesus, when Jesus asks a question, he's not asking a question to gain information. He knows why she's weeping. You know, when, when he asks a question, he's not trying to figure out answers. It's kind of like when, you know, you ask your kids, that they come in, they're crying, and they're crying for a silly reason, and you're like, why are you crying? And they're like, oh, because my brother was mean to me. Like, I knew that. I wasn't asking for information. I'm saying, you're crying for a ridiculous reason. Why are you crying? Oh, I'm the only one. <laughs> oh, yeah. Parents of the year out here, I see. Yeah, you didn't beat your kids on the way into Easter today. All right? Uh, so he's not asking to gain information. He, he, he's asking, he already knows. So he asks, why, why is she weeping? And, and, and I think what Jesus is trying to do, he's trying to help Mary understand a situation that she has a misunderstanding of. See, Mary is full right now of, of disappointment. 
misunderstanding. Uh, she's confused. She, she uh, is distraught. She's full of sorrow. And, and, and a lot of times those disappointments and misunderstanding lead to more sorrow. And, and, and Mary's weeping and, and sorrowful, but she doesn't understand the bigger picture of what God is doing uh, in, in this moment. And so often we're like Mary, right? We're gonna, we live in a world that is, has evil in it. We, we live in a, a sin-riddled world. We're going to have our own sin that's going to provide consequences in our life that are going to be very hurtful and sorrowful. We're going to have people sin against us that is going to create more misunderstanding and hurt and disappointment. But we're going to walk through life, and if, if you walk through life through any amount of time, you're going to experience some kind of storm, some kind of disappointment. You're, you're going to have dreams, unmet expectations, crushed dreams. You're going to have something happen to you where you're like, well, I, God, I thought you were going to do something differently. I had expectations that my life would go differently than the way it's going. And these, this disappointment and these misunderstandings leads to more sorrow in your life. You know, maybe you're here and you're like, I, didn't, I thought the marriage was going to go different than the marriage went. I thought my kids were going to be different. I, I, thought, I thought my kids were going to turn out Differently, I thought, God, that you were going to help me in my financial situation or my career path or, or, or these, these things. I had these expectations, and God, I thought you were going to come through for me. And what happens is when we have this, when we're full and we, we, we don't understand the bigger picture of what's going on, and we've got these discontentments and these disappointments and these misunderstandings, what we begin to do is we begin to believe that God's promises aren't true for us, or even worse, that he's not there. And this is what Mary is doing. She's in the garden. She's disappointed. She's got unmet expectations. She's full of sorrow, and she's weeping, and she's beginning to wonder, Jesus, I, th I thought your promises were true. They're not feeling like they're true right now. And worse, where are you? She's looking for the body. He's not there. So she's full of this kind of just doubt of what God is doing in her life. Now, here's the, here's the reality. We may not ever understand why God does the things he does in our life. We may not understand why that loved one died. We may not understand why we walk through what we walk through in that, in that marriage or the hurt that we're walking through. We, we, we may not ever know the why behind the storm, but what we can hold as true is that Jesus promises and his purposes are greater than we can understand. You know, the Bible talks about how uh, uh, that God, for those who love him, he works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He didn't say all things are good, but he works for the good of those who love him. Sometimes that good comes because of hurts, wounds, hardship, storms. And we can trust that, that Jesus sympathizes with us. He cares for us. And really, when we walk through storms, we got to begin looking at the things in our life with a greater perspective and understanding that we don't walk through storms just for the storm's sake, but God always has something going on, always some purpose that we can begin to say, God, what are you doing in my life through this particular thing? And, and in light of the fact that you are alive, you Jesus, you are sitting at the right hand of the Father praying for me, and you are working on my behalf as a 
a child of God, as a son of God, as a daughter of God, I can trust that whatever I'm walking through, you're going to turn it to good. These are the promises that Jesus has said to us. And I'm always going to be good, but he's going to work for our good and that he's always going to be there. He will walk with us through it. Even when he told his disciples, he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's a promise given to us as well. Well, his disciples were about to be martyred, all but one, and they tried to kill him too. So he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I, I will be with you. Now, the second question that Jesus asked Mary, he asked her, whom are you seeking? Which I think is a huge question for us today. Now, notice, he says, why are you weeping and whom are you seeking? He asked the second question before she has time to answer the first question, I think, because the answer to the first question of why are you weeping is found. The answer is found in the second question, whom are you seeking? See, there's a lot of you that have walked into this room today and you are weeping. And you might not be physically weeping, but you are broken. And you're broken because you've tried to find hope and healing and peace and joy and places and people that don't offer hope and healing and peace and joy. You've tried to find life in places that only offer death. You, you have tried to seek a way with your life to find some kind of stable ground, some kind of like, uh, you know, ground zero for you, some kind of base where you can have hope and life and joy and you're not finding it because you're literally looking in places that only bring more pain and death. So, so that means... Yeah, you dealing with stress by looking at pornography. That is not going to relieve you of the stress that you have in your life. You going to pills to try to escape or try to deal with the pain or the bottle to try to deal with the hurt. You drink yourself away so you don't have to feel anything. Or you enter into relationships thinking that this relationship is going to be the relationship that really turns my world right back up. And really that relationship does nothing but spin your world upside down. The issue is we're trying to find hope and healing and peace and joy in life in things that were never meant to give us those things. So there's only one place and that place is not even a place. It's a person. And that person is Jesus. So if you don't have Jesus, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, if you're not pressing into Jesus, you're trying to find hope and peace in your career or, or, or a, a, a substance or a relationship or the dollar or materialism. You're trying to find that fulfillment in, in wells that are empty and will not satisfy you. And so Jesus is the one that heals our brokenness. There's nothing else that can heal you. So you might be running to other things, but you're just going to be hitting your head on a wall. You're not going to find life in those places. And I, and I love how Mary comes to Jesus. She doesn't try to clean herself up. She is weeping and wailing and distraught and ugly crying. And then when she finally sees Jesus, we'll see she clings to him. She clings to him. See, you don't have to fix up yourself to come to Jesus. That's a misnomer in Christianity that is bogus. You don't, you don't, you don't get more moral. You don't say, I'm going to really work on my life or come to church more so that God will be pleased with me. That's not how God accepts you. He doesn't want you to clean up your life because you can't do it. 
You just become like this whitewashed tomb the scripture talks about, the Pharisees, in which on the outside you kind of look okay and you look decent and you wear decent whatever, but on the inside you are death. So Jesus says, you come as you are. I'm the one who fixes you. I'm the one who heals you. I'm the one who brings peace and life and joy. I'm the one who brings those things. You come to me for life. You come to me to be healed. Jesus is the one who heals our brokenness. Now, let's look at verses 15 and 16. I've already read some of 15, but let's read it again. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Why, uh, whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I'll take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned, said to him in Aramaic, Rabbi, which means teacher. So the first thing you need to understand, Jesus heals our brokenness. The second thing you need to understand is Jesus wants a personal, intimate relationship with you. He wants a personal, intimate relationship with you. Notice, you know, Mary didn't recognize Jesus at first. I think Jesus kind of hid himself from her as he did the disciples walking on their way to Aeneas. But she thought he was the gardener here. And then Mary's sorrow turned to joy when Jesus spoke one word her name. He said, Mary. And all of a sudden, she realized it was Jesus. See, Jesus knew her. Jesus knew her name. Jesus had personal relationship with her. Now, here's what you need to understand. See, this Christianity thing, it's, it's, it's more than the generic John 3.16 view of Christianity, which John, what I mean by that is you might understand that, yes, I, I cognitively see that God has a love for me this generic love, and he loves me as much as he loves anyone else. And, and there's this God loves the world kind of aspect that he loves me. And I generally think that, you know, he'll take care of me, take care of my family, that he'll, he'll look out for me. But it, the, 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 the love of God, the relationship with God has to be deeper than g- the generic God loves me because he made me. He, 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 he put his image in me. He's made me. It's got to be deeper than that. It's got to be. It's got to be more than that, and so, so much so that you know Jesus knows Mary's name, right? He knows her. Matter of fact, you know, if you don't, if Jesus doesn't know you, you don't have relationship with him. Now, you might be thinking, well, of course he knows me, right? He formed me. He formed me in my mother's womb. He knit me together. He he knows the number of, of hairs on my head. Some of that's easier to count than for others. You know, like he he he. Yeah, of course he knows me. It's a a deeper kind of knowing than just knowing about you. It's knowing you in an intimate, personal relationship sense. If you remember in Matthew chapter 7, in Matthew 7, there's this parable about people coming to Jesus upon entering into eternity. And they say, Jesus is casting them out of heaven. And they say to him, Jesus, why? Didn't we do great things in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't, didn't we uh, do mighty works in your name? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do these things in your name? And Jesus says, away from me, depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. So upon you entering into eternity and standing before Jesus, what will he say to you? 
Is there a chance that he could look over your life and say, I never knew you. I never had a personal, intimate relationship with you. Or will he say to you, my son, my daughter, my brother, my sister, my child, well done. I know you. Do you, does he know you? know, the scripture talks about it's good that we uh, know God, but it's better that he knew us first. Do you have intimate relationship with Jesus? Now, here's the thing. Like, if Jesus were still dead, if Jesus were still dead, what we may do in Christianity and what some dead churches do is that they, they, they just take these kind of rules and th- that are taught by a good teacher and they say, all right, the standard by which we get to heaven is that we keep these rules. Like the Savior, you know, the, the, if Jesus was dead, we would just kind of take his teachings, claim him to be a good teacher and follow a bunch of rules. And based on our following of these rules, we would kind of rank in order of like who's pleasing God more or less. But Jesus is not dead. Jesus is alive. And what Christianity is, it's not a bunch of rule keeping. What it is, is it's a relationship with the one who kept all the rules for us. And so our standing before God isn't dependent upon our morality. Our standing before God is dependent on our closeness to Jesus. And does he stand in the gap for us? Does his righteousness count as our our righteousness? See, this is what happened when Jesus went to the cross. When he's laying there, when he's nailed to that cross, God puts on him, 1 Corinthians said, sin. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. What that means is my sin, those who would believe upon Jesus, all their sin was placed upon the cross and he took the wrath of God upon himself for our sins. But that's not where it ends because he lived a perfect life. He then takes those that he died for their sins, he takes his righteousness that he lived and he lived in perfect perfect obedience to God, completely pleasing the Father. That righteousness he takes and he puts upon those who will believe upon him. And so you stand not in your own moral righteousness because your own moral righteousness is nil. You stand covered in the righteousness in Christ. And that's how you can have a relationship with him. And that's how you can be pleasing before God, not because of what you've done, but because of who you know. Whom are you seeking? Are you seeking your own moral righteousness? Are you telling your family, all right, we'll go to church, man, because this is what you're supposed to do on Easter? Or do you have a relationship with Jesus? Are you hoping that God will credit you some kind of righteousness just because you have a checklist of things that you do? Or that you culturally identify as Christian, do you know or have a relationship with Jesus? I think one of the other misunderstandings here with, with this particular ideology is a lot of people think they're going to, they know Jesus because they've joined a church. Uh, you know, one of the favorite things in the church world for me is a church will say, well, we've got 3,000 members. Like, oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, but we've only got 100 people coming. <laughs> All right. Uh, these black people might think they're getting in because they're on some roll somewhere. Or a lot of people think that they're going to get in uh, because Mammal got in. And if Mammal's getting in, we're just going to waddle like ducks right behind her, right into heaven. And Mammal can't get you to heaven. 
This has got to be a, a personal, um, do you know Jesus? This is not a group plan kind of thing. You can't get in because your boyfriend's in or your girlfriend's in or your wife or your husband's in or your mommy and daddy are in. That's not how you get into relationship with, into heaven. You get in because you know Jesus and he knows you. Does he know you? Do you have personal, intimate relationship with Jesus? And you know if you do, by have you found life in Christ? And we'll talk about that right now. Let's read. Let's finish out this passage, 17 and 18. 17 and 18 say this. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So Jesus heals our brokenness. Jesus wants personal, intimate relationship with you. And then lastly, Jesus changes who you are. Jesus changes who you are. This is how you know you have a relationship with Jesus. Notice what he says to Mary Magdalene. He says, go to my brothers. What's significant about Jesus saying of his disciples and calling them brothers is that this is the first time in all the scriptures that Jesus refers to his disciples directly as brothers. So what that means is, what Jesus had accomplished on the cross, that he had taken sin, died for sin, defeated sin, rose again from the grave, adopted the people that would believe in him into the family of God. He changed his disciples from friends to family. He changed them from just acquaintances to adopted. He brought them from outsiders to insiders. He changed their status and their standing before God the Father. Jesus changes who we are. The scriptures talk about because of his death, he has given them and us the right to be called children of God. Jesus changes who we are. He makes us children of God. We're not default children of God. Not all people are children of God. Jesus calls some Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. So not everyone, just because they have blood in them, are the children of God in in an intimate sense. But he says unto them, those that he's given, those that he has saved, he's given them the right to be called children of God. That comes through intimate relationship with him. Jesus, rising from the dead, changes his disciples entirely. But not just his disciples. I want to close by looking at Mary Magdalene and how he changed her. You know, Mary came to the tomb looking for a dead man. She came to the tomb looking for a dead man, and she found a risen Savior. She came to the tomb hoping that someone would open the tomb for her, and Jesus instead opened her eyes. She came to the tomb to put spices onto Jesus to prepare his body and then fully anticipated returning home and telling everybody how peaceful a dead Jesus looked. But instead, she went home and she said, I have seen the Lord. The proof of Mary being changed and that Jesus is alive is the the fact that her testimony says, I have seen the Lord. Does your life scream that Jesus is alive? 
Is there evidence in your life that screams out, I have seen the Lord? This is how you know if you have personal relationship with Jesus. If you have encountered Jesus, your life is radically changed. You can't come to Jesus and be unaltered. It's impossible. It's as possible to go out here to Church Street and stand in the middle of Church Street and have a semi come down the road and nail you going 80 miles an hour and you say, oh, that ain't going to change me. No, it's going to change you. It's going to mangle you. You will be flat. And if you live, which you probably won't, but if you did, it would completely alter the rest of your life. How much more so are we changed by Jesus encountering, coming into our lives than we would be by being hit by a semi? The evidence of a personal relationship with Jesus is that you're changed. He sends his Holy Spirit in you to begin to make you like him. He moves in you. He sanctifies you. He changes you. And my, my, my greatest fear in our cultural Christian Bible Belt society, my greatest fear is you'll go home, you'll think you've got your fix of Jesus, you'll talk about how you know, nice the service was or how nice the sermon was or wasn't. You know, that guy just yelled. Um, and you'll, you'll sit around lunch, Easter lunch, and you'll do more traditions. And instead of being changed, you'll talk about Jesus as if he was a peaceful corpse. And you'll say, well, that was nice, but it doesn't affect me. That was nice, but I'm not changed by it. My question, I think, is the same question that Jesus asked. Whom are you seeking? Why are you here? What do you want? You're looking for life in places that are only death. You're looking for hope in places that can't give you hope. You're trying to prop your life up on on temporary joys, but those things will run out. There's only one way to have life, both eternal and abundant now. And that way is in Jesus, in Jesus alone. So continue to run to empty wells. Continue to run to your career. Continue to run to your kids, living vicariously through them. Continue to you know, run to addiction or continue to run to whatever you want to run to. But until you come to Christ, you will have no life. Life is only found in him. And Jesus Defeated death, and he can defeat death in you. He defeated the grave. He can defeat the grave in you. There's no one too far gone for Jesus not to resurrect and bring to life. The scripture says that you are dead in your sins and trespasses. That's why you keep seeking death, because you are dead. But Jesus defeated death, and he can defeat your death. He defeated death with finality, and he can defeat death in your life. He can bring life to your dead soul. He can bring sight to your spiritually blind eyes, and he wants to do that today. Whom are you seeking? 
Who are you seeking? I would implore you to be saved today. If God is stirring in your soul, don't ignore that. Don't ignore that. I would love to talk with you. You know, I will be after this service, after our baptisms, I will be through those doors and to the right. I would love to talk with you. Maybe you don't want to talk to me. That's fine. I can understand why. Maybe you, want, you just want to, there's, you can check on that connection card that you got. There's a box on there that says, I want to accept Christ. Check that. Put your name and a good contact, and we'll contact you later this week. You can take it to the Discover Life Point booth or bring it to me. But come to Christ today. Take that step today. Be saved. Whom are you seeking? I don't think anybody's here by accident. God brought you here to hear the gospel and for the light of Jesus to shine into the dark hearts. Don't ignore that today. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are alive, and we praise you for that. And uh, God, I pray that you would bring spiritually dead hearts to life now. I pray that you would give spiritual sight to blind eyes now. I pray, God, for those that have propped up hope on things that aren't Jesus, that they'll see how quickly those things fail and fall flat. They're seeking temporary joys that won't last. I pray for um, the broken in here, the hurting. You are the only one that brings healing. So I pray that you would bring that today. I know there's folks that have walked in here and they're weeping. They're broken. For we all have a past. We've all been broken. We've all had to deal with the consequences of sin, both our own and that around us. So we've all had to deal with brokenness. You are the only healer for brokenness. And Jesus, I pray that you would open our eyes that we need a personal, intimate relationship with you. Um, You know, if this is just a tradition or a yearly hobby, there are better hobbies. Golf would have been awesome today. But you bring life. You are not just a game. You are not just a tradition. You are not partnered with the Easter Bunny. You reign and you rule and you have defeated death and sin grave with finality. And you sit at the right hand of the Father. And you await the day that you come returning as a roaring lion defeating every foe. So, Father, may we press into intimate relationship with you. And then we would examine our heart. Maybe we think we are saved, that we are Christians, simply because we say such. But is there change? Is there life? Is there a peace that can withstand the storm? 
pray, God, that you would open our eyes. And for those that need to be saved today, you would save them. You would give them the boldness and courage to step out, to seek someone to pray with them, answer some questions, and find life in Jesus. I pray you would bring that hope and peace and life to them today. We love you, Jesus. We need you. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.